Our friends have named their robot vacuum. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm about that. I don't know. I think you're, yeah, you're more primed versus I'm like, oh, it's named Hubert. What's it going to do to me? Pet. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the inflection there. <laughs> oh, it's named Hubert. What's it going to do to me? <laughs> Just straight juxtaposition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And welcome back to our podcast, How Real Is That Science, where we attempt to confirm or refute the legitimacy of science within pop culture. I'm Natalie. And I'm Nicole. We're scientists interested in science communication. But we don't claim to be experts on all the topics we're going to discuss. We have, however, done our research. And that's the important part, folks. Always do your research. Have you ever watched a movie or TV show and felt a little bit uncomfortable with how the CGI effects made people look? Definitely. There are like some famous or infamous examples the polar express the cgi baby in twilight which is still less terrifying than the doll that they would have put in (laughs) and we just talked about this for michael douglas and ant-man because they make him look young yeah de-aging yeah exactly and in comparison when there are subpar shall we say cgi effects on animals or alien creatures most people just find them kind of funny Right, like the weird way that sharks move in Deep Blue Sea is just, it's so hysterical. I don't think that's how sharks move. I don't think they've seen a shark. Well, they definitely don't know anything about the science of sharks. But that's neither here nor there. And sometimes bad CGI is funny. And sometimes it's totally uncomfortable. Yeah. Like we just mentioned with the aging down CGI. I, that makes me so uncomfortable. It, yeah. it, it gives me like... An icky feeling. Yeah. Like something's wrong. Yeah. So the reason that these effects creep us out on humans might actually be explained by science. In 1970, a roboticist named Masahiro Mori proposed that a person's response to a human-like robot would abruptly shift from empathy to revulsion as it approached, but failed to attain, a lifelike appearance. Mori called this concept the uncanny valley, Because the shift to revulsion is a valley between two hills that correspond to how much we generally like less humanoid robots and real human beings. His original article published in Japanese didn't garner a lot of attention, but it was translated into English and re-released in 2012. Since then, the Uncanny Valley has attracted a lot of attention, not only in the field of robotics, but also in other scientific circles and in film media. We're going to delve into the research that's been done to test the validity of the uncanny valley phenomenon from a psychological and neuroscience perspective. Then we'll talk about the movie The Thing from 1982, which to me is a classic example of the uncanny valley, and it inspired a lot of other media that invokes the uncanny valley effect as well. But first, let's go through some of Maury's initial observations that developed this idea. While initially proposing the idea of the uncanny valley, Mori compares an industrial robot with a toy robot. So the first, think about being vaguely arm-shaped, entirely designed for its functionality. And then toy robots, on the other hand, 
are intended for the owner to develop an attachment to, so they'll usually blend some blocky robotic elements with a vaguely humanoid shape, like having a head or limbs. And sci-fi media commonly uses the cute, blocky type of robot to create characters that they want us to get attached to. Like R2-D2 or BB-8, my personal favorite. Or that really cute robot in the last Star Wars. It was so polite. (laughs) It was funny. It was so polite. And then Wally, of course, a classic example from animation. He is. But according to the Uncanny Valley, humanoid robots can reach a point where they look enough like a human that instead of being endeared, we feel creeped out. I personally think of those robots in iRobot or the CGI zombies in I Am Legend. They're close. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's something off. Yeah. Maury also points out that the movement of these robots plays a big role in this. We're more endeared by robot toys that can move around. But when people die and lose all the movement that's associated with life, people tend to feel a bit creeped out, like around corpses. But if something that looks like a corpse starts moving around, a.k.a. zombies. Sure. That also heightens our discomfort or, we'll say, deepens the uncanny valley. Which leads me to a really interesting part of Maury's original essay about this idea. Yeah, he speculates about the psychology surrounding the phenomenon of the uncanny valley. The translation reads, Why were we equipped with this eerie sensation? Is it essential for human beings? Maury goes on to say, I have no doubt it is an integral part of our instinct for self-preservation. That alone is a bit of a chilling thought, right? Oh, it is. Why would humans develop an innate instinct that makes them uncomfortable with things that look too much, but not quite like a human? Right. It makes you think of invasion of the body snatchers. It makes you think about aliens. Like, what in our past made us scared of things that are kind of there, but really aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. And... This concept has permeated through pop culture in so many different ways, and we're going to dig into that a little bit later. But first, let's talk about how the Uncanny Valley concept has developed since Maury's initial proposal. Right. So Maury proposed the Uncanny Valley for people in robotics to consider as they work at the intersection of technology and humans. And while the idea might resonate with people, it doesn't make the Uncanny Valley a scientifically proven theory. Since Maury's essay was translated to English, There have been several papers published attempting to confirm the existence of the Uncanny Valley. We're going to focus on a few more recent publications today. From reading through some of these papers, it seems like the early work in the field was trying to really establish how we could even test the Uncanny Valley response in human subjects. When we start studying a new phenomenon in science, it can be really difficult to figure out what experiment is actually going to test the question you want to ask. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, right? Not detecting the effect Mm -hmm. you thought you would be measuring. It doesn't inherently mean that the effect isn't happening. Yeah, exactly. And I think studies about the Uncanny Valley are still relatively new. So there may not be a perfect study design yet. And that validation is an important part of, Mm -hmm. of working through that field of science. The general approach relies on showing participants pictures that range on a scale from non-humanoid robots to actual human beings. They would then obtain feedback about how much the study participants liked or would trust the depicted robot or human. Theoretically, comparing how human something was with how much a participant liked it or trusted it would show the appearance of the uncanny valley on a line graph. A major concern with this, though, is 
what images are you going to show people? Right, exactly. What images would you use to accurately trigger the Uncanny Valley is a difficult question when you aren't even sure the Uncanny Valley is a real effect. Right. A paper from Palamaki et al. in 2018 focused entirely on evaluating how reproducible the Uncanny Valley actually was using different sets of images. In the research published so far, there were two major ways researchers were building their image sets. One was to morph a computer-generated human face with a robot face. You would end up with five or so images on a scale from completely the human to completely the robot. Basically, if you're old enough to remember those Animorph book covers, it's exactly that. But I personally think it would be less creepy because those Animorph book covers were insane. Yeah. Yeah. The sheer range of things that those kids were morphing into. Insanity. Yeah. Because they're not robots, right? They're animals. So it's like you get these weird half human, half animals. And it's like, do you put the face in there? Like, yeah, they were creepy. Yeah, exactly. Also, I think it's less fun than an Animorph book cover. I'm just going to put it out there. I'd, if you, I would sign up so fast if I knew a study was going to let me look at Animorph book covers and make assessments. I'm just going to say that. The second way that these studies are conducted is to use real pictures of various robots that were progressively more humanoid and ultimately then a real picture of a human. And typically, these real photo image sets were also screened through pre-validation steps. And what that means is that it's supposed to make sure whatever response your images in any given category elicit is similar for all of those images. Right. So if people looked at five different pictures of toy robots and four of them ranked about the same in terms of likability, then the fifth one that didn't fit would be excluded. Right. Because you want to say, like, my category is eliciting a single response, whatever that response is. Right. To cut down in variability. So... What the Palamaki paper found was that using the computer-generated morphed image approach, they couldn't replicate the uncanny valley effect. But when they used pre-validated real images, the effect was replicable. Interestingly, they were also able to observe the uncanny valley when they used a mixture of computer-generated morph images and realistic images if all the images went through pre-validation. I mean, that seems reasonable, pre-validation steps. I'm for it. So let's look at a study that used one of these more reproducible methods. I found an interesting study by the Grabenhorst Group at the University of Cambridge in 2019 that not only tested for the Uncanny Valley, but also took images of the participants' brains to try and understand what parts of the brain might control the Uncanny Valley response. Participants were told that each human or robot had decided among four gifts to award the participant at the end of the study. The participant would be shown pictures of the humans and robots and instructed to choose in favor of whichever they would prefer to receive the present from. What a fun scenario. Mm. I'm just going to put it out there. It's, I, I was having so much fun reading this method section. <laughs> the present options were pretty fun, too. Hypothetically, the robots or humans could choose between, and get ready for this, a movie theater voucher, a package of dishwasher tabs, a bottle of sparkling wine, and a package of quality toilet bowl deodorizing blocks. I mean, I personally would pick the movie voucher. Just, uh, I don't know if it's become completely obvious. I, I love movies. I don't know. But the dishwasher tabs would be so useful also. <laughs> so It's a hard choice. It's a hard choice. Yeah, I mean, you don't even know how much that voucher is for. Right. Is it going to cover a ticket? 
I don't know. I think I might go for the toilet bowl deodorizers because it's the only one they specifically tell you is of quality. Well, that would just be a disappointing present <laughs> if it wasn't quality. Anyway, from their results, they suggested that the uncanny valley response occurs due to activity in parts of the brain that are important for processing risk and fear as well as our decision making. When artificial humans or robots are perceived as being very human-like, activity in this risk and fear area is really high. This might be the idea that that uncanny feeling is us trying to process how big of a risk interacting with this being is. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a major conclusion the group made. They they work a lot on social partner interaction right. and understanding why you would choose to interact with that social partner. And ultimately, it's really difficult to thoroughly and fully validate this kind of a psychological concept. It's only been studied for a relatively short amount of time as well. So a lot of psychological principles are probably contributing to the effect that we haven't fully teased out. Right. But there are some interesting ideas revolving around it. And it's been proposed that the uncanny valley may contribute to the fear of clowns or the fear of dolls. Mm, there's a lot of creepy dolls. Yeah. They're coming for you, Natalie. Don't. Don't say that. Don't put that curse on me, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> They're coming for you. <laughs> and whether or not science has sufficient evidence of the Uncanny Valley, the LA Film School actually has a blog post on their website entirely dedicated to the Uncanny Valley and how important it is for film and game makers to consider its existence, particularly with animation. They specifically incorporate the Uncanny Valley into their training so it can be avoided or intentionally used. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about how it could be intentionally used. Mm. And rewinding back to the question, why would humans have an instinct to make them wary of things that looked human but weren't? I think we can connect it to something broader, right? Humans are typically pretty perceptive of behavior mm -hmm. uh, because we want to match that. We want to look at see what's wrong. Mm -hmm. And we use it all the time to assess if people are acting like themselves. You can usually tell when somebody you're close to is feeling off mm -hmm. based Ab on their behavior. Absolutely. In media, we often see this as fear of mind control mm -hmm. or cloning, mm -hmm. those sorts of horror tropes. Yeah, there were a lot of good choices about what to delve into today. We've already referenced a lot of other pop media. But like I said at the beginning, I really want to go through the classic movie The Thing from 1982. As always, we're going to talk about major plot points, so spoiler warning, you've had, what, 39 years to be able to watch this if you've been alive? So The Thing is adapted from a 1938 novella by John W. Campbell called Who Goes There? Creepy. <laughs> the novella was adapted once before into the 1951 movie The Thing from Another World, which is a great movie. <laughs> A prequel to The Thing was also made in 2011, and it was announced in 2020 that a remake is in the works. We'll have to see about that. Yeah. So the basic premise focuses on a group of American researchers in Antarctica, and a slide dog runs into their camp, followed by a Norwegian helicopter. The Norwegians are attempting to kill the dog to the great confusions of the American. I know, it's a dog. It's so sad. Why would you kill the dog? Uh-huh. <laughs> So yeah, the Americans are confused, right? <laughs> as many people would be. And eventually the Norwegians die while attempting to kill the dog as well. The dog lives. For, for now. Or does it? 
So very ominously, the only phrase in English you hear spoken by the Norwegians is when they call the dog the thing, hence the title of the movie. They conduct an autopsy and deem there to be nothing physically abnormal with the Norwegians to explain their behavior. So they're concerned for the research base after this really weird behavior. And they go to investigate, which is never what you should do in a horror movie. (laughs) I will also say, like, the autopsy, he's wearing the thinnest possible gloves, no masks, like... It's it's a it's strange. Antarctica. It, you, you need to be cold there, obviously. So you want to wear the thinnest protective layers. <laughs> Logic. Yeah. So at the base, they find evidence that the Norwegians excavated something out of the ice and that a lot of violence happened there. Yeah, that's normal. <laughs> Back at the American camp, they send the dog to their kennel. And shortly later, they hear all the dogs become agitated and return to find a truly grotesque alien creature consuming their dogs. Yeah. These are the special effects that you love in this movie. Yeah. Well, cause they're, they're practical effects, right? So they had to create this fake blood and the, the matted fur and stuff. There, a lot of creativity went into it, which I'm mm-hmm. not saying creativity doesn't go into CGI, but there's a lot of, ingenuity that has to go into practical effects i mean it really is materials engineering at the end of the day like you're trying to conceptualize some texture and viscosities and you're just making it happen yeah and it's so gross and at this point the audience knows whatever this creature is it's able to completely and convincingly mimic other life forms which is so scary it is and the research team finds this out surprisingly fast as well with one of my favorite displays of science in any movie they use beautiful pixelated computer graphics of a 1980s computer game and you see a mean looking blob labeled intruder cell and it attacks a nice looking blob labeled dog cell when the intruder cell gets close to the dog cell, sure. it basically eats it and then takes on the appearance of the dog cell. It's really hard to tell if this is like just a computer graphic simulation or if it's supposed to be actual images of samples themselves. I agree. It, I think it's a simulation. And if that wouldn't be that weird. But either way, they kind of make it seem like this is something they definitely watched occur with their own eyes when looking at samples of blood from the dog that they mixed with tissue from the alien creature. And technically it's alien biology, so we can't say we wouldn't be able to see that. You're really right. And I both love and hate that. I love that. It's such a cop-out. It's my favorite thing. (laughs) It's like, well, it's aliens, so we don't know. And you're like, well, dang it, you're right. But anyways, after that graphic plays, some text appears on the screen that states there's a 75% probability that one or more of the team is already infected by the intruder organism, which is such a great piece of suspense for this film. Yeah, I mean, and you just have the character looking at this computer screen like, it's like, oh, dang it. This pure face of like, I can't trust anybody. No. And it really is like a like skyrocketing moment of suspense. Mm-hmm. And 
following that, it says if the intruder organism reaches civilized areas, the entire population of Earth would be infected 27,000 hours from first contact. And, okay, so 27,000 hours is about three years, which I feel is, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense with the population of Earth. Sure. But I feel like that's not that extreme. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, so I guess any alien invasion is extreme, right? Because it's an alien invasion. No matter what the time course is. But I'm really curious why they picked that time scale. It's, it's like Invasion of the Body Snatchers takes over the entirety of San Francisco in like less than a week. I, it's like a strange introduction of realism, quote unquote, if you want to say it that way. Because sure, it takes time for contact to be reached and you have to consider remote areas. But there's not necessarily realism in a lot in of the rest, rest of the plot. <laughs> so why there? I don't know. But maybe they did some actual modeling. Maybe we could be hopeful. <laughs> I don't know. They probably were like, you know what? This sounds like a fun time. <laughs> Especially to express it in terms of hours. It just makes it feel even longer. Well, I think it's probably because they were using a simulation. Yeah. And they had already input like hours. And probably, it's like, yeah, I guess. input like a million hours. And you'd be like, crap. Okay. How long is that? Is that four days? Like, you know. Yeah. I think it could also make it a bit spookier to have the longer invasion because you don't know who among you is infected and slowly more and more people are getting replaced. Yeah. Ugh. It just, it's, <laughs> I just bring it back to Invasion of the Body Snatchers because it's, it's a very similar thing, right? That you're having these two alien populations take over mm -hmm. the face of somebody you know. And it's like, are they real? Are they not real? And I mean, this is how the characters in the movie feel. They're mm -hmm. they're they're spooked. They're creeped out. Mm -hmm. They're freaking out. <laughs> There's paranoia everywhere, and it really pulls into kind of the social aspect of the film. You don't mm -hmm. know who to trust. How do you create alliances? How do you survive in an Antarctic research base? You're yeah. not getting help. Well, yeah, and yeah, and you see you see them kind of. They clearly already had people on the team they were close to or already mm -hmm. had conflicts with. So it kind of, like you said, Amplifies builds that. on that social aspect of like you want to trust the people you trusted and you don't want to trust the people you didn't trust. But what if you now have to trust the people that you didn't like? Yeah. And so it, it just creates a lot of, of uh, conflict. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Overanalyzing every aspect of interactions and behavior yeah yeah and i think that this ultimately is directly connected to the idea of the uncanny valley right something can mimic humans and your perception is working overtime trying to figure out who makes you uncomfortable yeah and you can even get a little conspiracy theory about why humans would have an instinct to detect imposters and you can go very easy with like you're just on a group and you want to not trust the other group so that's how you're determining your risk but you could also go for aliens which is my favorite of our theories exactly and it ends with you thinking that they might have killed all of the intruders but we know that these alien species can survive in the ice because the norwegians dug up supposedly 100,000 year old ice that this creature thought out of so nothing is for sure. Well, if you're watching the movie very, very, very carefully, at the end, there are two characters who survive, one of whom 
is their breath is making that kind of fog haze when you have hot breath and it's cold and the other isn't which i don't know if that's just something they forgot to put in or if it means anything but it could come into play in the upcoming remake because (laughs) the thing from the 2000s was technically a prequel yeah it is uh but we'll have to see another cool connection to the uncanny valley as well as connecting to the thing is the viral sensation mobile game Among Us. It's been everywhere despite coming out in 2018. It really hit its stride during the pandemic lockdown. It did, and you never really got into it. No. But I had a few friends that I would play it with, and I enjoyed it a lot. You're either a crewmate working to maintain your spaceship or space station, uh, or alternatively, you're an imposter, and you're trying to kill all of your crewmates before they figure out that you're the imposter. Right, so you don't want to be suspicious. I do. I do remember that going around while i was not playing the game don't be sus fun memes fun memes and one of the space stations you can play the game on is heavily inspired by the thing this map it's called polis it's a snowy planet there's lots of small buildings you're running around in between and if you've watched the thing it it really strongly reminds you of the antarctic research camps Yeah, I mean, games that involve deceiving your friends are just really fun, classic games for me, at least. But I think the whole world, because who doesn't love to destroy their friends while playing a game? (laughs) It's pretty classic. And I guess they're honing our uncanny valley senses, so we'll all be prepared for those future alien invasions. The real reason we should all be playing Among Us. (laughs) Well, that's it for this week's episode. We're always ready and willing to talk more about our episode topics, or you could just let us know what your favorite or, I guess, least favorite CGI (laughs) is in any movies or TV. Uh, We love hearing your thoughts on the episodes, so come find us on social media. We're on Twitter at HowRealSciPod. Instagram at HowReal_SciPod. And our website, anchor.fm backslash how real is that science. You can find us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll be back soon talking about genetic engineering and dinosaurs with the Jurassic Park series. Find out next time with how real is that science. should put that on a sticker an inspirational sticker i'm just getting a bumper sticker that says we're all sacks of goo aren't we though (laughs) at the end of the day